Well, good morning. So glad that you're with us this morning. And especially if you're new or new-ish to North Wake, maybe you've been streaming in for a little bit now. Just wanna remind you that at the end of the service, there's like a meet and greet over Zoom or uh, where you can have a chance to Zoom in and meet a couple of our pastors. I'll be on there. I think Rob Craig, who's still kind of on vacation at the beach, will be there. So if you have any questions you know, about our church or about anything we say today, feel free to jump on at the end. Uh, I know it might be kind of hard to compete with lunch, getting close to lunchtime there, but you know, I don't mind if you eat on the call. That'll be okay with me. Just save me some uh, dessert or something like that and it'll, it'll all be good. Uh, we're continuing a series through the Gospel of Mark. And the primary question that Mark, the Gospel writer, wants to answer for us or help us answer is who is Jesus really? And that's a, it's a great question. It's one that many people have been asking for a long, long time. Uh, the famous writer H.G. Wells once said, more than 1900 years later, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. Uh, in the introduction to his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, uh, Philip Yancey adds this. He says, when I switched on my computer this morning, Microsoft Windows flashed the date, acknowledging that whatever you may believe about it, the birth of Jesus was so important that it split history into two parts. Today, people even use Jesus' name to curse by. How strange it would sound if when a businessman missed a golf putt, he yelled, Thomas Jefferson! Or if a plumber screamed, Mahatma Gandhi! When his pipe wrench mashed a finger. And if I hear somebody scream Thomas Jefferson on the disc golf course in Wake Forest, I'll know it's probably one of our youth that uh, watched this today. No offense meant to you, Mr. Jefferson. But uh, Philip Yancey concludes, we cannot get away from this man, Jesus. Now, chances are, if you're listening today, you already believe that Jesus is a pretty important person. Uh, either so much so that you've committed to give your life, to give yourself to him. You believe that he's God's son. Um, or you're at least considering who he claimed to be and you're weighing out what exactly to do with, with Jesus. But in either case, I hope you'd agree that it's pretty critical that you understand who it is you're dealing with. I mean, this is why you date people for a while, right? Before you marry them. This is why you uh, listen to input from friends and family uh, before, before you marry someone, right? You listen carefully to their, what they think about them. So you can at least try to sort out to some degree uh, what their character is actually like. I'm sure there's always surprises and skeletons, but you know, you don't wanna go into marriage totally blind. Or let's say you wanna take a job. Before you agree to the job, uh, you wanna hear about the terms and conditions. Uh, what type of work are you expecting me to do? Uh, what sort of schedule am I going to keep? How much vacation do I get? And how much am I going to get paid, right? Uh, or, you know, you really want to know if you actually like that paint color and how it's going to look in the lighting of your home before you paint all the walls. And you can trust me on this one, the wound is still as fresh as the paint. But, uh, so how much more then? You know, if you're planning to make a spiritual, lifelong, eternal commitment, do you need to know and understand the person of Jesus? Like who he was, really? You know, I fear that many people of my generation especially have rejected a Jesus that they never really understood. A one-sided caricature. But perhaps equally as troubling is the number of people who claim to follow Jesus 
and yet have never really taken much time to get to know who he is and what he was like, which is a bit strange, right? If you claim to stake your eternal destiny and your earthly devotion to someone, but you hardly ever bother to find out what they're like and what, what they're about. Well, our passage here today in Mark's gospel gives us a grand opportunity to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, to see Jesus in action and see for ourselves who he really is and what he was all about. So this passage is gonna show us, the passages you just heard read earlier are gonna show us three main things about Jesus. That he's the Lord of joy, that he's the Lord of rest, and he's the Lord of love. The Lord of joy, the Lord of rest, and the Lord of love. Let's begin with the first section, that uh, Mark chapter 2, 18 through 22. Uh, but all, all three of these narratives that you heard read earlier, you just heard this read, uh, it's part of a larger series of conflicts that Jesus was having with the religious leaders of the day. There's about five of these stories in a row, and we've already looked at two. Today we're looking at the last three, uh, the Pharisees, his conflict with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of highly influential, very devoted, well-educated Israelites I mean, they were deeply immersed in the Hebrew scriptures and they taught uh, the people of Israel the importance of obeying the laws in the scriptures because after all, it was Israel's failure to keep these laws that had led them to defeat, exile, and now foreign occupation under Rome. So understandably, the Pharisees were highly vested in correctly interpreting and enforcing the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees, they would have been the most upstanding, Bible-knowing, spiritual discipline, box-checking people you would ever meet. And they even chose regularly to go above and beyond the things they like had to do. They would spend two days a week, typically Mondays and Thursdays, fasting and praying. Two days a week, no eating. So these guys were pretty serious. But then along comes Jesus, who we saw, uh, as we saw last week, he always seemed to be eating and drinking and with sinners at that. And he didn't seem to require his disciples to fast hardly at all. And so it makes sense, you know, that some people would come to Jesus and ask, as you see in verse 18, hey, how come you guys don't fast like the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist? Can we really take you that seriously as a, as a spiritual authority? And Jesus' response to them uh, tells you so much about him and what he came to do. He says in verse 19, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? What's he saying? What's he mean by this? Well, in ancient weddings, uh, even more so than modern ones, these, these were lavish parties. I mean, think summer vacation, a week of summer vacation with more food and drink than you could shake a stick at, right? Life as usual could not go on. There was so much celebrating to do. Family would get together, friends, feasting, music, dancing. And this, was, this would go on for days, right? Nobody was fasting. I mean, even at uh, modern, weddings, modern weddings, if you think about it, basically people look forward to two things, really. Uh, see the bride, walk down the aisle, and the food. Right, you've probably been there, right? It's a wedding reception, 7 p.m., and you're just standing there staring at the brisket, maybe the chocolate fondue fountain, just waiting on the bride and groom to finish up their 5,000 kissy pictures and show up already, right? Uh, your stomach growls as you sip your punch and stand there with your friend looking longingly at the food. 
together. <laughs> uh, and then all of a sudden you hear the MC say, thanks for coming, everybody. The wedding party is here. Let's fast. <laughs> you know, no, nobody says that. They say, let's eat. It's party time. The bride and groom are here. This is a celebration. So what is Jesus saying about himself and what he came to do? He's saying, I'm the bridegroom and I have come to bring the joy. As long as I'm around, we are going to celebrate. I mean, do you know what Jesus' first, first miracle was? His very first miracle recorded. It's given in the gospel of John and it's where he turns water into wine at a wedding feast that had run out of wine. John calls this the first of his signs, his first miracle, his calling card. So this wasn't just like a warm-up miracle, you know, like, you know, raising somebody from the dead, that's pretty tough, but water to wine, I think maybe that'd be a good start. No, 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 this was not just like a practice miracle. The first of Jesus' signs was a miracle that brought joy. And so by saying, I'm the bridegroom, especially to a Jewish audience, Jesus was saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am the long awaited husband of Israel here to bring the festal joy. It's a radical claim he's making for himself. He's putting himself center stage in Israel's history. He's putting himself center stage in people's lives. And he's saying, get ready for a major overhaul. And I think this is what he's getting after in verses 21 and 22. He says, this is a new wine. This is a new cloth. This is not some sort of add-on or minor upgrade. Okay, nobody loads iOS on a flip phone. This is a whole new device we're talking about. So Jesus is not here. He didn't come just to enhance anyone's life or be an add-on to your current religious practices. Life as usual cannot go on. He is the bridegroom and we're all invited to the party. Jesus claims center stage as the Lord of joy. Is this how you understand Jesus to be? Is this, is this who you understand him to be? A bringer of joy? I mean, when you think about Jesus, when you think about him, is that what you think of? He's, he's a bringer of joy. When you think about him, what, what emotion fills your heart? What's your gut reaction when you think about Jesus? I mean, you know, you have, you have different reactions, right? When you hear from different people. If people, uh, if somebody's name pops up on your phone, they're calling you or a text comes in from them. You have different reactions to different, different people, right? So social secret, I'm gonna fill you in on. You answer the phone differently with those different people. Right? If the other person is a person that's fun, uh, that you look forward to talking to, then you answer like, hey, what's up? You know? And if it's somebody that maybe you don't so much look forward to talking to, you know, it's just usually like a polite, you know, hello, or you just ghost them entirely. So like when Daniel Cresswell calls my phone, I normally answer like, Daniel Cresswell, what is up, dude? because Daniel is a joy bringer and I like talking to joy bringers, right? Or uh, when I get home at the end of the day to see my kids, a lot of times, this is the reaction I get. See if you can watch uh, this video. I'm being attacked. I thought you were happy to see me. 
that's the sound of Captain America's shield uh, hitting someone, in case you didn't know. Um, but I, I think that was joy. <laughs> I hope so. I was attacked with a smile, you know, when I got home. But when you think about Jesus, when you hear from him, when you hear from his word, or you think about spending time with him, what's your gut reaction? Maybe you don't quite understand him. He's the Lord of joy. And he brings joy like nobody else. Joy has always marked who he is and what he is about. I mean, Jesus' birth was called good news of great joy for all the people. Because now anyone anywhere through him can enter into the great joy of God that was spilling over into laughter and dance from all eternity. And when Jesus returns at the last day for his people, it's described as, surprise, surprise, a wedding party, a wedding feast. It's joy to the world. Why? <laughs> because the Lord has come. You knew it felt like Christmas outside this morning for some reason, right? That's, that's what it was. He's, he's the Lord of joy. It's just who he is. And so the question is, does this kind of joy mark you as a Christ follower? Does it mark us as a church? I, I long for this to mark my life. I will have lived well if my children and my grandchildren remember me as a person of joy. And I'm not just talking about having like a peppy personality or being an incurable optimist, right? This is something far deeper, something that can mingle with sorrow and, and tears, I mean, Jesus sees this even as the shadow of his death begins to fall in verse 20 of chapter two. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and they will fast in that day. You see, the Christian life is one of both feasting and fasting. It's a life of joy and sorrow, but the sorrow is temporary. It lasts only for the night. Joy comes in the morning when the Lord of joy returns. Joy is the primary thing for us. Uh, Robert Law captured this so well in his book. Uh, it's called The Emotions of Jesus. And this was written in 1915. So I've got kind of a long quote from here. I'm sorry from him here, but this one was just too good to pass up. Listen to Robert Law from over hundred years ago. He says, the blessings of the divine kingdom he was bringing to men could compare to nothing so much as to the festive joys of marriage. Himself and his disciples were like a wedding party. He was the bridegroom whose joy overflows into the hearts of his friends and turns fasting into feasting. Even at the last, on the verge of Gethsemane and inside of Calvary, he speaks not of his sorrows, but still of his joy. He is the Lord of joy. And his crowning desire for his servants is that they may enter into the joy of their Lord and have it fulfilled in them. Yet Jesus is the man of sorrows. And it is because he is the man of sorrows that his joy is so precious a legacy, so strong an anchor to our souls. This is the Christian faith. And is it not a joyous faith? Is it not a joy deeper than all sorrow to know that he who holds the helm of my life, who holds the helm of the great universe, is one whose character is the character of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the son of his love. God is what Jesus is. 
If this faith is ours, our religion is one that rests upon the whole nature of things, one in which we can rest, and it ought to fill our lives with joy much more than it does. Though clouds and darkness may trouble the circumference of life, at the center is that eternal light, the radiance of which beheld is joy and strength. So Christian joy is not a plastered smile or whistling zippity doo dah. Kids, you may have to ask your parents about that one. But Christian joy is fueled by a settled confidence that Jesus holds the wheel and that he is the Lord of joy. And only if we understand this can we begin to rightly reflect Christ to our children, to our friends, and to our neighbors who may think that the face of God holds only a scowl instead of a great belly laugh. He's the Lord of joy. Uh, The next section, starting in verse 23, in this story, Jesus and his disciples are chastised by the Pharisees for breaking the Sabbath by plucking heads of grain in a grain field. Now, you need a little bit of background information to understand the significance of all this and why the Pharisees were so irate with Jesus and his disciples. So the command to keep Sabbath, which basically means to stop or rest, was given to the ancient Israelites by God as one of the Ten Commandments, right? As you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So the Israelites were to take one day out of each week to pause from their labor to honor God and remember his gracious deliverance of them from their slavery in Egypt because he had given them rest. And they didn't just rest one day a week. That was not the extent of it. No, no, no. Every seven years, the people were to store up their crops in the sixth year so that the land itself and they could rest more from crop production in the seventh year. And then every seven cycles of seven years, so every 49 years, was what was called the year of Jubilee when property was restored to owners who had lost it, indentured servants were set free, uh, debts were forgiven, families were reunited, and all of this, the Sabbath, the every seven years, the Jubilee year of every 50 years, all of that was like a big, 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 big deal to the Israelites, okay? It was called a sign forever between the Lord and the people of Israel. It was so serious that anyone who profaned the Sabbath by working on it was put to death. Okay, so, and and the Hebrew scriptures even recorded that one of the reasons the Israelites were exiled from their land was because they stopped recognizing the Sabbath celebrations. And of course, the Pharisees knew all this, right? This is all in the back of their minds. And so they wanted to make sure that nobody broke the Sabbath ever. So they tried to sort out, you know, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath exactly? What what do you you consider work? And so the rabbis uh, formulated an extensive list of do's and don'ts for the Sabbath day. And it pretty much involved only doing things uh, deemed essential. And I mean like absolutely, positively, totally, life-threateningly essential. Uh, For example, you could help a woman deliver her baby on the Sabbath, uh, but you could not set a dislocated joint or set a broken bone. Had to wait, got to wait till the next day. Or as in Jesus' case, you could not, according to the Pharisees, 
pluck a few spare heads of grain to satisfy your hunger on the way to synagogue worship. And so what was once intended to to be a great blessing, a thing of freedom and rest, became a great burden. Uh, Commentator David Garland gives us a helpful way to think about this. He says, such an approach, like the Pharisees, easily veers into a kind of slavery, religion for religion's sake. And the pietist can become like an ill-taught piano student who plays all the right notes but fails to make music. Like an actor in a B-movie who woodenly recites a memorized script but who does not carry any conviction. Or like a dancer who carefully counts the steps but never cuts loose to dance. A fondness for negatives and a long checklist of rules, particularly for other people, can make religious life a burdensome ordeal that never sings or exults in religious duties and obstacle course that weeds out weakling sinners. You know, it's worth pondering. Are there ways that we go beyond the clear teaching of Scripture and pile up unbiblical and unrealistic expectations on ourselves or others about what it really means to be spiritual? And how do we guard ourselves against that? How do you keep from falling into the ditch of religious scrupulosity on one side or just disregarding God's commands altogether on the other? Well, Jesus helps us with this. And he gives us two ways, two things to do, uh, or two ways to not do what the Pharisees did. Watch his response to them. You can see in verses 24 through 28, I'll just summarize. His retort's pretty simple. He says, hey, You think we're doing a bad thing by plucking some grain on the Sabbath? Well, remember that one time in the Bible when King David broke the Levitical law and ate bread that only the priest could eat? But that seemed okay, right? You guys good with that? And their response would have been something like, yeah, 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 but that was David, the King David. And besides, he and his men were starving. They had to eat something. But you see, this is Jesus' exact point. So he tells them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What was the initial purpose of the Sabbath? It was to meet the needs of humans, the need to rest, the need to recharge, the need to worship. So step one to not becoming a Pharisee is understanding the heart behind God's commands. Don't settle for the letter of the law and miss the spirit of it. It doesn't always mean the spirit of the law is easier, but the spirit of the law is fueled by love for God and others, whereas keeping the letter of the law is fueled by pride and fear. So Jesus points them back to the intent behind the Sabbath and then takes the argument even a step further, saying, so the son of man, hint, hint, even greater than David, is Lord of the Sabbath. What does he mean by this? Now, notice he doesn't say the son of man is Lord over the Sabbath as if he intends just to render the whole thing moot. No, no, no. He says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I'm the Lord of rest. He says, in essence, you know the thing that the Sabbath was intended to do to refresh, to restore you, but you need a deeper rest than one day off or a year off every seven, or a whole great big year off, one every 50 could provide you. The Sabbath was a sign forever for Israel, and it was pointing to me. This is why in Matthew's gospel, in his telling of this same account, Jesus says this, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, rest for your souls. You see, Jesus did not come to break the Sabbath. He came to bring the Sabbath. I mean, if you'll watch Jesus throughout his ministry and see what he does on the Sabbath day, it's fascinating. He heals on the Sabbath. He begins his ministry on the Sabbath in a synagogue and he opens a scroll and says that he's the one who's come to free the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, the year of final rest. And then finally, he's crucified just before Sabbath begins, bringing us true rest by his death. I can't put it any better than Pastor Tim Keller. He said at the end of his great act of creation, the Lord said, it is finished and he could rest. On the cross at the end of his great act of redemption, Jesus said, it is finished and we can rest. When Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, He is saying, I have come to give you the Sabbath rest you need. Rest with God. Rest in God. And you see, this is step number two, so critical to not becoming a Pharisee or like the Pharisees. Only if you know the gospel rest of Jesus, resting from the need to placate God through your spiritual performance, can you avoid doing what the Pharisees did with God's commands. Only through knowing what Jesus did for you on the cross can you have the kind of spiritual security that you will need to follow his commands with wisdom and not with anxious scrupulosity. This is how you stay out of both sides of that ditch, of religious scrupulosity on one hand or just rebellious depravity on the other hand. Linger long on the costly love of Christ. Now, before we move on from this, I suppose this may leave many of you still wondering, so should Christians keep an actual Sabbath? And if so, uh, what is that supposed to look like? Right, and so for a long time, I think I essentially understood this passage to be a proof text for why Christians really didn't need to bother with taking a day of rest. You know, it's nice, but it's not essential now that Jesus is here, all that's done with, right? And while it may be true that we don't have any stringent requirement of taking one particular day for rest and worship, notice that Jesus actually honors and upholds the principle of Sabbath rest here. He says, the Sabbath was made for man. He says, essentially, in other words, the Sabbath is a gift to mankind. And while the ultimate purpose of Sabbath rest, as I try to just explain, is to point us to the final rest of Jesus himself, it doesn't mean that the literal Sabbath isn't still a needed thing for us. And Lord knows in our society of hurry, efficiency, and constant stimuli, our souls need a taste of rest. We need to know what it is to enjoy God, to enjoy the wonderful gifts he's given us, to stop working for a moment, to remember that you're not the ultimate provider for you, that you're not a machine, you're a human. And so you were made to rest. Uh, My grandfather, who's now passed away, uh, one of my grandfathers, he was a successful businessman and a small town public servant. And so he was very, very busy and not a little stressed. Uh, 
Uh, but just a couple of years after I was born, he had his first of many heart attacks and heart surgeries at the age of 48. And throughout the remaining years of his life, as I became a young man with my own responsibilities and stressors, uh, he would regularly remind me about the importance of rest. He'd say, son, you've got to learn to rest and slow down and enjoy life. I wish I had learned to do that sooner. Good country wisdom from my grandpa. Do you honor the Lord of rest by taking rest? Do you honor the Lord of rest by enjoying rest? And I'm not about to pronounce any sort of specifics on how you should go about doing that, but I'll just say that by choosing to take regular, intentional, perhaps even sacrificial time to rest, we do ourselves a world of good. And as we do that, we will find ourselves inevitably longing for more, longing for more rest, a rest that no weekend or week away at the beach could ever give you. You'll find yourself longing for the true rest of Jesus Christ because he is the Lord of rest and he came to bring rest. Now in the third story here, um, while this, this story about the plucking the grain on the Sabbath, you know, that seems a little nitpicky on the part of the Pharisees just uh, making an argument about him picking grain. But this last story, um, it shows a much darker side to just how far religion gone wrong can take you. You see, as Jesus enters the synagogue in chapter three, there's a man present with a, a withered hand uh, or his hand is, uh, you might say, dried up, paralyzed, perhaps deformed. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that this was his right hand. So likely, uh, since Luke mentions it, it's his dominant hand. Which, I mean, this is a devastating handicap for anyone, but especially so in an agrarian society like this. And yet the Pharisees choose to use this man as a test case. They don't care about his condition. They don't seem to care about the fact that Jesus could actually heal the man and how amazing that would be. They only care about catching Jesus on a technicality so that they can then accuse him, discredit him, and ultimately to destroy him. And so their callousness comes into full view here. Their hearts are far more withered than this man's hand. And Jesus, knowing that they have laid a trap for him, he just springs the trap. Uh, he calls for the man to stand with him up in front of the entire assembly. And then he asks the Pharisees a, a penetrating question. He says, verse four, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? You see, he sees right through them, knowing that they are scheming his death on the Sabbath. <laughs> so he calls them on the carpet. I'm healing someone and you're planning to... So he gives them an opportunity to course correct, but gets nothing in return from them, but stone cold silence. And Jesus' response to this hardness of heart that he sees in these people is, is deeply emotional. And this is one of the strongest displays of emotion that Jesus has anywhere in the gospels outside of the garden of Gethsemane and the raising of Lazarus. It says here, verse five, that he looks around at them. So take this in in your mind's eye, standing up front uh, in front of the whole assembly with this man next to him, asking the question of the Pharisees. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? 
to save life or to kill? Nothing. He looks around the room, looking each one in the eye. And it says here that he was filled with anger or fury and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. This is a terrible cocktail of emotions, right? Wrath and grief. He's infuriated with them for their hardness of heart. And yet he's also described as deeply distressed. The type of grief, a deep type of grief that you would feel when you've lost someone you love. And so I imagine as he looks around that there are hot tears trickling down his flushed face. I mean, the tension of this scene would have been palpable. And then Jesus, knowing full well what was to come to pass after this, commands the man to stretch out his hand and he restores it. But then we see that he secured this man's healing at the cost of his own life. It says the Pharisees, they got what they came for and they leave immediately to find a way to use it against Jesus and to kill him. Now, why in the world, why in the world would they do this? Why would you seek to destroy a man who's going around healing people? That seems great, right? I mean, certainly he rocked the boat with his claims to forgive sins, to be Lord of the Sabbath, to know God as his own father. I mean, in their eyes, he was a blasphemer and no doubt he would be a blasphemer and a royal narcissist to boot unless he was the genuine article. But I wonder, I just wonder, if they never really paused to consider whether or not his claims could be true because underneath all their self-righteous indignation was a more sinister motive and it was envy. You see, the Pharisees were threatened by Jesus. He had captured the hearts of the people and they wanted their prestige back. He was to them what C.S. Lewis called a transcendental interferer. Uh, Lewis writes of his feelings toward God before becoming a Christian. He said, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. There was no region, even in the depths, innermost depths of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. Can you relate to that? It's often much the same with us. John Stott adds, he said, we resent his intrusions into our privacy, his demand for our homage, his expectation of our obedience, why can't he mind his own business? We ask petulantly and leave us alone. To which he instantly replies that we are his business and that he will never leave us alone. So too, we perceive him as a threatening rival who disturbs our peace, upsets our status quo, undermines our authority and diminishes our self-respect. We too want to get rid of him. You know, I hardly imagine that anyone really minds Jesus' teaching on joy and rest and love. But it's to say that he is Lord that is oftentimes a bridge too far. I mean, you may like what you have to, uh, what Jesus has to say about X or Y, but he can keep his grubby hands off of Z. 
But you see, all of his teaching about joy and rest and love, it's all based on his claim that he is Lord. So what will you do? What will you do with Jesus, the interferer? You know, I can't help but wonder what was going through the mind of the man with the withered hand when Jesus asked him to stretch it out. I mean, you know, he's in a bit of a catch himself, right? I mean, I'm sure he longed to be healed. And yet here he is up in front of the whole synagogue in front of all the people that would have been most well-respected in his little town. And so to obey Jesus and stretch out his hand to be healed of his deformity, this is a risk. He's taking sides. He risked expulsion from the synagogue, which in that day would have been so disgraceful and socially handicapping, he may as well have just had his other arm cut off. I wonder what he was thinking. Maybe what will they think of me? What will they do with me if I listen to this man and stretch out my hand? And yet, he does it. Why? Because he wants to be healed uh, and he's heard of Jesus' other miracles? (laughs) Yes, of course, but he's no dummy. Everyone there sees what's going on here between the Pharisees and Jesus. And he knows that at some level, Jesus is putting himself on the line for him. And I wonder if that's what enabled him to put himself on the line for Jesus. Jesus has sided with me, so I can side with him. And you know, it's, it's the same for us. Only when you see that Jesus stretched himself out for you, even on the cross, will you be ready to stretch yourself out to him, even if it costs you your social status, your independence, and your right to call the shots in your own life. Because you know that he secured your deepest healing at the cost of his own life. You see, he's the Lord of love and he is a good master to serve. So what will you do with him? You really only have two options. Um, Like the Pharisees, you can try to get rid of him. Or you can stretch out your hand to him and let him heal you, let him love you. And yes, let him be your Lord. You can open your life to him, all of it, to do anything that his loving bidding requires. And you can do it because he opened his life to you, to his very last breath. Let's pray. Christ, you are the Lord of joy, of rest, and of love. You have come to bring us joy that transcends our sorrows. Rest that transcends the craziness around us and love. Help us by your spirit to be a people of joy, of rest and of love. And we give you thanks. We give you thanks for for these words, for this scripture that shows us who you are. Help Help us to really see it so that we would love you and live in love for others. It's through Christ we pray, amen.